Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Alrighty. Welcome back to the Celtics Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Tuptapai. Joined by Dr. Justin Quinn. Kind of a full slate of programming at the end of the show. We are going to give a little bit of commentary on Jalen Brown and Kanye West and that mess. Um, and in the second half of the program, we'll also do the news. But first, with a game against the Cavaliers at home on Friday, we welcome in Evan Damarell of Lockdown Cavs and Fear the Sword. Evan, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing okay. Um, well, actually, I guess... Uh, between the clunker in Chicago and the Jalen Brown rain cloud, things have been better, but personally I'm doing okay. We could be one and four. That's all I have to say. We could be one and four. Yeah. 81 and one still on the table, baby. Um, so Evan, we are going to hop into what we call the Celtics lab. And we're going to talk about this Cavs game because the Cavs are looking pretty good, at least on paper anyways. Um, so we'll talk about that game and the Eastern Conference. And then again, in the second half of the episode, we'll do Celtics news and stuff like that. So Evan, actually, I'm going to start uh, just because uh, right before we hopped on, I saw you gave an injury report. Um, what's the latest on Garland and some of the other calves that are on the injury list? So we'll, we'll go in reverse order of the injury report for guys who are probably not going to be playing anytime soon. Uh, Ricky Rubio, did tear his ACL last season for while he was with the Cavs uh, against New Orleans Pelicans. And he's still in the rehab and recovery process for that during media day. Rubio said he hopes he could be back by late December, early January, but they're not going to put a firm timeline on him. And let's be frank, since the Cavs did sign Rubio to a three-year contract extension or just a three-year contract period. I think that kind of gives you a glimpse of the fact that the Cavs aren't going to be looking to rush him back either. Like they don't really need him to be Darius Garland's backup. And I think obviously getting Donovan Mitchell kind of mitigates the need to rush Rubio back as well, which is really helpful. Um, Dylan Windler suffered a high ankle sprain during practice. I believe he stepped on the foot of a teammate. Uh, either defending a shot or trying to shoot the ball in general. And it's just an unfortunate reality with Windler where he's just always injured. He said heading into training camp this year, this is the healthiest he's been since his senior season at Belmont, which was four years ago at this point. So you, you feel for him, you, your heart goes out for him and you just hope that he can just get healthy, get right. And just maybe tap into a little bit of that potential because there were still times even last season when he was playing with the Cavs that you saw a little bit of it where you're like, okay, there's, there's not much there now, but there's still something there. And with Isaiah Mobley, it's nothing to of concern. It's Evan Mobley's older brother. He's on a two-way contract with the Cavs. Uh, the Cleveland charge, the G league affiliate of the Cavs um, opened up training camp on Tuesday this week and they uh, are just practicing. I think you'll probably see, probably won't see him or Mamadi Diakite. Like Diakite was available Sunday against Washington, but um, he was uh, not, he was in street clothes, so he didn't play. So I think they'll sure. just be focusing on that. And then the, obviously the biggest injury is Darius Garland, who 
if folks may not know, he was poked in the eye by Gary Trent Jr. on a pretty reckless play, no foul call. You can, we can, people can complain all they want about the refs and everything else, but he's recovering. He went from his eye being completely swollen shut, but thankfully, no inner, there's no damage or surgery required that is like of any serious concern for the Cavs or just Garland in general. So he's recovering slowly but surely. He live tweeted the game against Chicago from his couch. <laughs> and then he was at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse on Sunday for the home opener, even though he had sunglasses on. And I was joking with my friends. It was kind of like a weekend at Bernie situation where it was just Garland <laughs> and sunglasses and they were positioning his body and all the photos. But uh JB Bickerstaff did share on Tuesday that Garland is wasn't expected to play Wednesday against Orlando. I think it'd be safe to assume he won't play Friday in Boston either, even though it's a big game, but he could play in that one. But from what I've heard and what I've kind of gathered, I think Sunday against the Knicks might be when he first makes his return to the court because you don't want to rush this. And I think Donovan Mitchell just being on such a hot tear too kind of makes it a little easier again to just maybe let him ease his way back in. But it's a promising sign his recovery. He was able to do some on-court activity stuff today. I think it's just more so they're making sure he's fully comfortable and his eyes just feels comfortable again. And we'll see how he's doing. Um, the, the Cavs really won't update until it's appropriate. And obviously like that's that's their prerogative. That's fine. But yeah, other than that, the Cavs are, are doing okay. Like you said, they are a fun, young, interesting team. I think the advent of Donovan Mitchell just kind of, Going absolutely bonkers to start the season certainly softens the blow losing Darius Garland. And they're in a really interesting spot heading into this game on Friday against Boston because I think it's going to be like their first true gut check test of the season other than playing in Toronto where they clearly got sucker punched by the Raptors and were kind of trying to navigate the waters and figure things out a little bit as they uh, reassess um, in the moment when they lost their all-star point guard. But you haven't really had a chance to look at how Garland has been fitting uh, with, uh, oh my goodness, I just, Donovan, <laughs> sorry <laughs> about that, uh, so far because of the injury. And I'm really curious, uh, it seems to me, I haven't really seen too much of the games, but he seems like he is playing the point guard role pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how do you envision his fit uh, when they are both on the court together? So it, it's it's going to be a process for sure, because these are both guys who succeed when the ball is in their hands. I think Donovan having to play next to Ricky Rubio and Mike Conley in Utah for majority of his career and Hollow Neto as well. Don't want to diminish uh, Neto's time there either, but I think Donovan is a little more comfortable playing off ball versus Garland. And I think those two just still have to iron out the kinks and figure it out. And you're going to see this across the board with the Cavs. So like it's those two figuring things out. It's Evan Mobley getting familiar with Donovan Mitchell because they didn't play together during the preseason. And Mobley was hardly available for camp because of a high ankle sprain. Um, Jared Allen is a little bit more of the consistent star of this core four. And I think he's probably the most comfortable because he can benefit from Mitchell and Garland thriving in pick and roll scenarios. But there were moments where, Mitchell said it himself. They were playing a bit of buddy ball where it's like my turn, your turn. And they're trying to find ways to be more creative and comfortable with one another. And in their home preseason game against the Philadelphia 76ers and to an extent against the Hawks as well, you saw a little bit more of the fit working between those two where you could see Donovan Mitchell driving to the basket and Darius Garland floats to the perimeter and Mitchell just having the foresight and knowledge to kick out the ball to the perimeter works. And then you also see like, Garland trying to attempt lob passes to Mitchell, but obviously just not connecting on them quite yet. So it's still a work in progress. I think 
it was never going to be a perfect seamless fit, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that's where the biggest concern is, especially when you're starting Karis Levert next to those two. So it's going to be a process. It's going to take time. I think the fact that the Cavs are playing so well at the gates helps a lot, but when they start firing on all cylinders with this team, having the makings of a top 10, top five, possibly defensive roster, like they could be fairly balanced. It's just, it, again, it's going to take time. I have faith it's going to work because Mitchell just seems just have that it factor to him where like when the pressure's on, he can really thrive in those scenarios. And I think that's going to be helpful as well because the Cavs last season shrank a lot when the spotlight was the brightest and the pressure was just really on them too. So it's going to be a process, but you saw some good promising early returns and you also saw some not so good stuff. And I think once they kind of iron out the kinks and just figure out just the issues they maybe have, and also just figuring out being more comfortable off the ball from one another, like it's going to be a pretty seamless fit. I mean, so far it's, it's early, but I mean, I guess you've had the, the summer to dwell on it just from like a vibe check. How does the team appear? How does like the organization appear? Um, the land writ large, like what, what's the vibe um, So around the team? Darius Garland described the vibes as immaculate during the preseason, oh, lovely. Which, <laughs> which as a fringe millennial, I, I somewhat appreciated. Um, it, it was a way for me as almost a 30 year old to connect the guy who will make more money than I ever see in my life in his early twenties. But um, I think the vibes are good. I think which is pivoting from how, and it's hard to kind of just put this in perspective because one, the pandemic just skewed time altogether, but like the John Bayline <laughs> era was only two ish, three years ago at this point, two, three years mm-hmm. ago at this point. And I thought things could not get worse for the Cavs. Kevin Love was frustrated and he was swearing Kobe Altman and John Bayline up and down the floor. And he seemed like he was on his way out and he seemed like he was a toxic asset and he was just on the end of his just on the end of things because he had a nagging calf injury that was linked to an Achilles injury he suffered. And like, it was just a lot of things just hitting the fan at once. And I think bringing in Evan Mobley, and I think obviously becoming a winning program fixes a lot of things pretty quickly. And you can maybe cover up and sweep some of the BS that's associated around you under the rug pretty well, but culturally the Cavs are in a really good spot. I think JB Bickerstaff is the right coach for this team because he connects with a lot of these players, um, not just as a basketball lifer, but as a black man as well. Like they have a strong connection in those regards. Like JB is more than a coach. These guys sometimes really, he tries to be a bit of the, just like their sounding board, like a a boss and a friend at the same time is how they kind of look at it, where they have a mutual respect of one another, but like they can goof around, but they can also be serious at a moment's notice too. And I think now, they know what's expected of them and the organization won't put any public pressure on this team. Like even after they acquired Donovan Mitchell, um, president of basketball operations, Kobe Altman said during his intro presser and Cavs, their annual media day, um, this isn't a championship or bust season for Cleveland. And he also didn't even go as far to put playoff expectations on this team either, because let's, let's be frank, the Eastern conference is really good and the Cavs could, have made this power move to get Donovan Mitchell and still be either fighting for a low-end playoff seed or even in the play-in spot, just, just based on how things shake out, whether it's between Boston, Philly, Milwaukee, Miami, Brooklyn, Chicago, Toronto. Like I'm that's seven teams just there. And like that's those are teams Cleveland is going to be realistically competing with for a playoff spot. So I think the vibes are good. I think the expectations have certainly shifted to an extent, but 
this Cavs team knows who they are. They know what they how they can win, and now they're taking an analytical approach, as J.D. Vickerstaff put it, to maybe simple, not simplifying, but maximizing the offensive potential of this team. So it's not so much they're in a rock fight every single night where they're just going to club a team to death and try and grind it out, and it's going to be a low-scoring affair, where instead the Cavs are able to maybe survive a sucker punch like they did against Toronto or against Philly the other night in the preseason when they were down 28 to nine, they came back and won that game. Like there's moments like that where the Cavs can kind of dig deep and win. And I think that's the maturity aspect because this is a very young team at the end of the day and the vibes can be good. The culture can be good, but if you're not winning or if something's off and like you can't handle the high pressure situations, it's not going to be much in the grand scheme of things. So I think it's just finding that balance now, but right now things are in a pretty good place. And on the city, everyone's excited. I mean, the rebrand is a hit with everyone. Um, I think getting down to the Mitchell's juiced a lot of the fans, hearing fans chant MVP when he was at the free throw line to win the game against the Wizards was kind of surreal to hear. And Mm -hmm. knowing there's going to be 40 more games of that is going to be kind of fun. And I think it's cool. Uh, I I always go back to Jared Allen saying during the all-star break that Quietly, this Cavs team takes pride in the fact that they're going to be the first team, hopefully the first team without LeBron since the 97-98 season to make the playoffs. So that's like a pretty big accomplishment because most of the guys on this team weren't even alive when the Cavs last made the playoffs without LeBron. We actually had you guys in the playoffs for our season preview, trying to project the the order of the East. Uh, I think we even had you uh, getting into the second round, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of that is based on our expectation that Evan Mobley is going to continue to grow as a player. He's already been very impressive so far, but what have you seen from him so far? Is he, is he looking like he's taking steps forward? Should we expect more from him this season? Should we maybe temper our expectations given all the changes that have happened to the team? So it's twofold. Um, I think when they got Donovan Mitchell, you could temper your expectations a little bit because Defensively, Evan Mobley was rock solid last season, and he he did do a lot of things you don't really see rookies do. But offensively, he was a little unrefined, very reliant on having a guard set things up for him and initiate. And the Cavs kind of have this expectation where he can be an offensive initiator, an offensive hub, um, more of a shooter and things like that. And heading into this season, Mobley hammered home the points, and he he is very soft-spoken and doesn't speak much, but he said – yeah, I want to be more of a playmaker. I want to be a guy who brings the ball up and on offense and run set plays and stuff. And he mentioned he wanted to do a few with his brother and he wants to be more of a shooter. And you notice during training camp and just during the preseason, there's a lot of just drills where he's working with Luke Walton or Antonio Lang or Dan Giroux, uh, just practicing on his shooting around the perimeter and just practicing standstill shots and maybe practicing pull-ups as well. And he, it's been hit or miss. Um, I asked JV Bickerstaff like, Hey, he, wasn't a shooter, much of a shooter last season. He showed the potentials at USC. Do you want him shooting right out the gates? And Bakerstaff said, if Evan's open on the perimeter, we want him shooting it. And I asked Evan, like, hey, how do you want to be more of an offensive hub? Explain this playmaking thing to me. He's just like, listen, Darius and Donovan can be really lethal off ball, or I can like kick the ball to Jarrett. And I'm starting to notice during games now where like Moby's at the top of the key, he'll throw it to Allen down low, and Allen will get an easy bucket in the post or something like that. There's like interesting ways that Moby can level up. It's just him finding the confidence in the spots to do it properly. Like his shot attempts are pretty low this season. I think it's less than double digits. And again, it's a small sample size, but right now I think it's just learning this new offensive dichotomy and where he fits in and easing him into maybe what he has. So I, I expect there to be growth. I expect there to be 
more comfort and familiarity on defense. It's not just going to be interior defense. It'll be perimeter stuff too. Like he's probably going to spend a lot of the night defending Paolo Bancaro on Wednesday against the magic. And he's probably going to spend time defending Jason Tatum and maybe even Jalen Brown on Friday as well. And then also the follow-up matchup on November 2nd. Like there's a lot of interesting tests for Mobley, but I think he is equipped to handle the defensive assignments because he's such a cerebral player. It's just offensively he's coming along slowly because I think losing Garland made it a little tough at the start of the season. And he, again, doesn't have a lot of familiarity with Donovan Mitchell. And they're going to have to use these live ball opportunities to get to know each other and learn what spots do and don't work on the floor together. Once it's, again, it's just like Mitchell and Garland. Once they start to click with Mobley, it's going to unlock a lot of things. And Mobley could start to work his way up the ladder to become one of the more primary options on offense. So, Evan, you teased a little bit like what the matchup might look like on Friday. So let's change gears and talk about that. But first I'm just going to pause the action and talk about our friends over at betonline.ag. Basketball's back and betonline remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. As your continued source for all your sports wagering information, BetOnline features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. It's always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events. You can bet NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to BetOnline.ag today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Make sure to use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your reward bet online where the game starts. And actually, uh, the YouTube crowd probably saw me with my screen flickering because I was looking things up and I learned two things. One, it's not that easy to find out the average age of a roster in the NBA if you don't speak Spanish, because the only site I can find that has it listed is a Spanish site. Um, Yeah, for some of us. Evan, I learned that the Cavs are actually the 10th oldest team in the league, um, hmm. the Celtics being the seventh. So uh, actually, these are, these are I was surprised too. I think just the league is really young right now because um, the, the Cavs are on average 26 years old, which is not a particularly old roster, I don't think. No. Um, but that's a whole other podcast conversation, I guess. I was very shocked to learn that. Um, anyways, we got a game on Friday and another game down the pipe. And as Justin teased, maybe a couple games in the spring before we talk about specific matchups from your side of the street. What do you think of the Celtics where they're at right now and where they might be later down the line? So I think last NBA finals against the golden state warriors is tough, but this is the proper level up that the Celtics needed. And my friends think I'm a little crazy. Some of my co-hosts and colleagues, think I'm crazy too. Like I think it's Boston's, now claim to the Eastern Conference is like theirs. And I think, yes, Milwaukee will pose some problems. Maybe if James Harden and the Sixers get out of the second round, maybe they'll cause some problems too. But, and maybe Cleveland comes for them eventually as well. But like Boston is just such a fascinating team where they're well coached. They have two young stars that is such a vital position on the perimeter and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I like Marcus Smart a lot. I like Malcolm Brogdon. I like Derek White quite a bit. I love Time Lord. I like... I like Grant Williams as well. Like you guys have such a nice collection of young pieces and that are so intriguing. Even Al Horford, who has turned back the clock once again and has become a very good player for the Celtics. It's just, it's weird. Maybe it's just that guy who were, if you take him out of that ecosystem, he doesn't function as well. Maybe it's just a pay. Maybe it's just a Boston thing. Something happens with the Patriots in a similar vein too with their players, but the Celtics are just in a prime spot where 
they have that bitter taste in their mouth. They were that close to winning the championship. And now, yes, the expectations have shifted and maybe things have changed a little bit. And like you guys alluded to, the game against the Bulls, those will happen. I don't think it's it's unrealistic to expect your team to go 82 and 0. And also, like even the Warriors going 73 and 9 or the Bulls going 72 and 10, like that's unheard of and unprecedented. I just, I'm very high on the Celtics. I'm very high on how they function as a team. They're incredibly balanced. I think having again two key stars at such a key position on the wing is in invaluable and if you're trying to build around an nba team and they they pose interesting matchups and if i'm looking at this from the calf side of things like yes toronto was a good taste of maybe where you stand and you were able to grind it out and pot and barely lose to them in the season opener without your all-star point guard but if Darius Garland does play on Friday or if he doesn't, this is your first like real test to say, hey, where do the Cavs stand in the grand scheme of the Eastern Conference? Because the Celtics are the defending Eastern Conference champs and they are the upper echelon of teams in the Eastern Conference as well. Where do we stack up against them and where do we need to improve and where are we looking strong enough so that, like you said, come playoff time down the line, if they run into Boston – will it be an easy outing for the Celtics or will it be a tough six, seven game series at the end of things? And it's interesting too. I mean, the Garland piece changes uh, like how playable Mark uh, Malcolm Brogdon is. Um, And the time Lord piece changes everything about Jared Allen. So I don't know how much data we'll get from Friday, but I do think we'll get a good basketball game. Um, Evan for Friday, not again, maybe in the spring, we'll come back to it, but for Friday, what do you think mm-hmm. the keys to success for the Cavs are? Uh, the keys for the success for the Cavs in this one is just probably working in within your system and figuring out what does work. Let's just assume Darius Garland doesn't play on Friday. And clearly what has been working for Cleveland in their last two wins is running a lot of what the Don, what the Utah Jazz did with Donovan Mitchell, where they just give the ball to Mitchell, run a lot of spread pick and roll. They have perimeters, shooters on the perimeter. They have at least a roll man and either Jared Allen or Evan Mobley just crashing. And obviously you play with those two seven footers to start things, but just kind of keep carrying this forward momentum you've been building into this game because it is a hostile environment. Boston is a hard place to play in. And like, this is a team that plays well at home too in the Celtics. So for that keysy success for them is just really keep that going. And then just keep kind of tapping into this Donovan Mitchell offensive engine. You've been grinding with where I, I ran the numbers the other day without Garland on the floor, he's averaging 36.6 assists and seven rebounds per game. And that's obviously almost in 40 minutes per game as well, but it's crazy numbers. And as long as the Cavs just kind of operate with their own system and don't maybe let the moment become too big for them, this could be a good test for them. Now, if Darius Garland does play, it does change things a lot, as you alluded to, too, where now you're kind of watching, like, how do him and Mitchell play off one another? Like, Garland was not great in the midst he did play against Toronto. He looked like he was a little too amped up just because it was a season opener and he was ready to go. So maybe he's a little more reserved, a little more calm and more laid back. But if he's still playing a little amped up, he's still looking a little off kilter. Like, the Celtics could capitalize on that and just kind of make hell for them on the offensive side of the ball because you could put brown or tatum on one of carland or mitchell and then also throw marcus smart at the other one and it could be a very tough grinded out game for the two of them sure um same same but different what do you think um is gonna be the biggest challenge for the Cavs on friday and does it rhyme with Taysom jadem 
yeah, it's 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 definitely Jason Tatum, and I'm intrigued to see how they defend him. Like, if the Cavs treat this as a straight up matchup, do you see JB Bickerstaff putting Karis LeVert on him to start the game, or do you maybe, let's say Garland is out, do you throw Isaac Okoro on Jason Tatum instead because Okoro has been starting in <clears throat> Garland's place up to this point, or? this is what I'm advocating for in the late Jonathan Charks always just like was in my ear about this too, where the Cavs have a very good perimeter defender on their hands and Evan Mobley. It's just do the Cavs feel comfortable doing it. And also does Evan Mobley mm-hmm. feel comfortable defending Jason Tatum. And I mean, ditto for Jared Allen too. Like Allen was forced on the switches on Kyle Kuzma the other day. And yes, there was times where Kuzma got the better of him on jump shot, jump, jump shot opportunities, but Allen was defending well enough in isolation where you would run down the shot clock on Kuzma until Kuzma was able to get a shot. So there's interesting ways the Cavs could defend this. They could use a little bit of their size to maybe just overwhelm Tatum a bit, but it's a top five player in the NBA too. At the end of the day, if he kills you, like you can't like beat yourself up too much over that. It's just as a team, how do you perform across the board against Boston so you don't really look like you're getting humiliated across the board either? Because like let's say like Tatum just goes absolutely nuclear. That's okay if you're able to contain the rest of the Celtics offensive threats. Yeah. And then that can kind of probably give you more than a puncher's chance in this game at the end of the day. Yeah, that's the old Carmelo Anthony New York Knicks routine. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Mellow playing the four is I mean Mellow, <laughs> Jason Tatum playing the four <laughs> is interesting insofar as it kind of does help Mobley cover him and um, that if the Celtics who have sort of been playing ball uh, on the smaller end of the spectrum and, and they will tell you, we don't really do positions. So it doesn't matter, but it could feed into the Cavs using that length down low to actually contain data a little bit. I also have a bit of size that they haven't really been facing too much early this season. And I'm a little bit concerned that what we saw against Chicago is going to be something similar to what we see when we play Cleveland, because, you know, when we're dealing with like Vooch and, and Drummond, it's going to be maybe the, 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 the way they're used is different, but the size is the same. And yeah. I, I think that could be a problem for Boston considering how small their front line is right now. Yeah. Vucevic, what did he have 10 offensive rebounds against the Celtics? Um, yeah. Jared Allen, that's baby food for him. I mean, if, if, that holds, that's going to be a huge opportunity for the Cavs. Um, Evan, I, I'm going to go to you first, and then I want to hear Justin's point of view on this. I think that Malcolm Brogdon and Kevin Love will both be firmly in the six-man mix, at least for a while. Mm-hmm. If you were a betting man, I don't know if you are. Um, today on, uh, I guess I don't know what today's date is, on October 25th or 6th or something, uh, Evan, would you pick Kevin Love or Malcolm Brogdon as your future six man of the year? So this is tricky because six man of the year is definitely based on scoring production and also winning. And if the Celtics are the number one or number two seed in Eastern Conference, wouldn't surprise me if Malcolm Brogdon gets it. But for now, I'm going to go with Brogdon just because I just don't believe Kevin Love's going to have the same season he did last season. Um, it's just because he's a year older. Uh, there's a little bit more tread on those tires too. And the Cavs are still obviously figuring out a lot more things where you have Jetty Osmond kind of becoming a gunner off the bench. You have Karis LeVert being an option, Donovan Mitchell as well. Like the Cavs are kind of figuring out other things where like Love is old reliable in terms of just spot up shots and just being a big who can give you rebounding, uh, some playmaking and some shooting. But like Brogdon also plays the guard spot. 
that's a much more vital spot too. And I just, I really like that fit with the Celtics. And also the question is health too. Like Brogdon has some health concerns. I think Kevin Love, it's fair to say he does as well. If one of them stays healthier than the other, I feel better about those chances too. So I, I'm going to stick with my Brogdon pick just because I think the Celtics can have one of the top records in the East this year. Sure. Feel- just, Justin, I was just going to say it is October 25th and um, on October 25th, what is, uh, what's your thinking? Uh, see, I'm actually leading the opposite direction. Uh, the health factor is certainly an issue, but I mean, you have to come off the bench to get the six man of the year thing. And I'm not a hundred percent sure that Brogdon is going to remain on the bench. I know that might sound, fair. that might sound spicy, but, uh, once Rob Williams co- comes back, I could see him moving to the starting, starting lineup and Derek going to the bench. And even apart from that, uh, the way that we saw him being used in the preseason with uh, Fast PP, Peyton Pritchard, and uh, Sam Hauser in the second unit, we haven't really been seeing any of, of Peyton Pritchard and a lot less of Sam Hauser. And that was what was really making him hum in the role I think that we all envision him having. If they don't have the, the proper amount of shooters around him, he's not going to be as effective. He's not going to get as many assists. And he might score more, but overall, I think he'll be not quite as effective as we hope so there's a lot more things i think that need to go right for brogdon to actually win the award i think than kevin love but the odds are probably the field over both if we're being honest at a glance it looks like the odds are it's going to be jordan pool um wow i just was looking at a sport an unnamed sports book because it's not about online they didn't have kevin love odds um now i'm looking at a different one and you can get Brogdon at plus 1100 and you can get Kevin Love at plus 3000. So mm-hmm. um, not great odds either way, but if you, if you fancy that, that bit of logic, we just laid out, maybe there's some value there. Yeah. Jordan Poole looks like the prevailing favorite, but he, maybe he'll be a starter too. Who knows? I mean, it is only October 25th as we firmly established. Okay. Um, Evan, uh, we'll get you out of here on this. Well, actually, I have two questions for you, one short-term and long-term. Um, what are you most excited about to, to see from the Cavs on Friday? Oh, that's a good question. More so, like I said, just how they stack up truly one of, if not the best team in the Eastern Conference. Like they're, They played Philly well in two preseason games, but that's the preseason, so it can't take too much stock from it. Um, they, they have yet to play Milwaukee, obviously, so I'm intrigued about that matchup as well, but if this the Cavs made a power move this summer, they cashed in almost all their tangible assets for the foreseeable future to go get Donovan Mitchell. And this is going to be one of those gut check games where you find out, okay, we are strong enough to hang now in Eastern conference, or do we need to make a few more moves to round out this wing rotation or just round up this step chart in general, just to make sure that if we do run into the Celtics or another team in the Eastern Conference playoffs, not just this year, but down the line, are we equipped enough to handle it and just things like that? So I'm, I'm interested in that. And also just seeing how Garland, if he does players, Mitchell against um, Marcus Smart's going to be fun too because Marcus Smart's just a bulldog on defense and he's going to really grind it out and give the Cavs some problems with their point of attack stuff. So it's I, I like watching good defensive teams go up against one another. So it's going to be a tactical matchup, but I just wonder if the Cavs have enough firepower to hang with what Boston possesses. So I'm looking forward to all of it. It's just, it's going to be a good game. I think it's just going to be a fun game in general. I hope you're right about it being a defensive matchup. Cause so far we have been lacking in that regard with the Celtics. So. 
Yes, we'll talk about that in just a moment, I think, Justin. Um, so Evan, um, first, tell the people where they can find you, but second, um, as dispassionately or passionately as you care to, to tell us, um, just like tell me about like the first hour of your life after Donovan Mitchell was traded. Like, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? So um, first of all, tell the people where they can find you. And second, either as a stone cold reporter or as maybe a fan of the league, what did, what did you think of the trade when it happened? So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, um, any of that jazz on at am.evan. I do some work at Fear the Sword. I mostly editorial stuff, but uh, some editing stuff as well. But I'm also doing Locked on Cavs five days a week. Uh, we talk about all things Cleveland Cavaliers. My co-host Chris Manning there. Um, and my reaction to the Donovan Mitchell trade, funnily enough, like Mitchell, I was on a golf course when I found out. <laughs> so I was just wrapping up and I was going to grab lunch with my parents and um, it was a day off work. And I saw the Woj bomb like many of us did and my brain kind of melted for a second and I had to go into work mode and confirm the details on my own terms and just figure out like, okay, this is the pieces going out, pieces going in, this is who's staying, this is what's coming. And then just from an excitement factor, it's just like, holy crap, that the Cavs got Donovan Mitchell. They were mentioned as like a dark horse suitor for the longest time, but I kind of took the day off that day because I'm like, he's going to be a Nick. And mm-hmm. the Knicks just kind of doing New York Knickerbocker things just really let the Cavs just kind of be opportunistic and take advantage of the moment. So it's exciting for the league. It's fun. And as you had mentioned, Cleveland and Boston both have some pretty young teams and some younger teams are also waiting in the wings as well. Like it it just further drives and puts into perspective where me as just a basketball fan in general gets me excited. Like the league is in just such a good place going forward because there's just a constant influx of young talent still coming in. And yeah, there's going to be stars that age out. Like there's going to be a time when LeBron retires. And then there's going to be a time when we're saying like seeing Harden and others go to like just Durant as well. Like just watch guys just age out and everything. And then you watch this just influx of young talent come flooding in. And it's just going to be a constant cycle. And it's just crazy to think like, how fun the game's going to be in no time at all. Yeah. Wow. That was such a philosophical approach to that question. Um, I guess I have one more. And also just for the YouTube crowd again, I didn't mean to match Evan and wear Cavs colors. I just put on a yellow (laughs) t-shirt, but um, it's all good. I do love the Cavs. Um, Just because you brought it up. Do you think LeBron will uh, retire a member of the Cavs? I'm thinking like one of those one day contracts. Or do you think his relationship with the Cavs is solid and he doesn't need that kind of uh, honorific or anything like that? I think LeBron's corny enough that, yeah, he would he would sign a one day or just to retire with the Cavs. And I think it will coincide with his jersey retirement because I don't know if you guys ever read Brian Windhorst and David McMenamin's book about his return to Cleveland, but the tracks were laid in motion when they retired the Judas Ogalskis jersey. And they had a special request to heat to let LeBron come to this ceremony because he and Z were so close and LeBron was so captivated by it and just the fans and everything that it kind of put the, the bug in the back of his head, at least to think of, of entertaining the thought of returning to Cleveland. And it's definitely fascinating. And again, you feel for Gordon Hayward because he was in the middle of um, his free agency tour of Cleveland clinic courts at the time when Rich Paul just kind of emailed their text to the Cavs saying that LeBron wanted to negotiate and talk shop and that he was ready to come back. So yeah, I think he'll come back one more time, but I do think that he'll just stick to what his family does. Maybe if Ronnie 
ends up going to Ohio State or something, maybe he does move back to Ohio and finish out the twilight of his career here. If like he finds a way to finagle that because he's LeBron James, he can kind of make things happen if he wants to. But other than that, I think he'll finish his career at the Lakers and then just retire like a one day deal, just in good faith to say like, yeah, he, he tactically ended his career as a member of the Cavaliers. Cool. I mean, Paul Pierce did that and I thought it was cute and, uh, no love yeah, lost. Like stuff. It's definitely corny, but in a good way. Cool. So all roads lead back to LeBron, and that road leads back to Paul Pierce. <laughs> Damarell of Lockdown Cavs and Fear the Sword. Thank you very much for stopping by the Celtics Lab podcast, and best of luck on Friday. Thanks for having me, guys. Anytime. Okay. Thank you very much, Evan. Evan Damarell of Lockdown Cavs and Fear the Sword. Good luck to the Cavs on Friday, but more good luck to the Celtics, I suppose. I don't know, however impartial we're supposed to be here. All right, so let's talk about the most recent game that the Boston Celtics played, uh, Clunker against the Bulls. We can talk about some other early season returns. And then at the end, we'll spend a little bit of time just talking about the most recent stuff going on with Jalen Brown and Kanye. And if folks want to tap out before then, understandable. So we'll do the news first. And the news is not great. Boston just blew the barn doors off of Chicago early 19 point lead. Jason Tatum really balling out and Jason Tatum took a rest at the end of the first and the shots stopped falling. And suddenly the Celtics were not in control of that game and they lost the game 122 102. It being the fourth game of the season, Justin, um, how concerned from that outcome are you feeling? Well, the Celtics are currently on pace to win about 60 games and that, very. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I had a couple of students ask me, what'd you think of the game? And I thought they didn't play very well, which is. No, but I mean, that happens, right? I mean, there's concerning things. Uh, some of which, I mean, I was ripped at the refs, like many of us were, but the refs were not the problem. The complaining and it's virility within the Celtics organization. It seems like everyone's complaining now. Uh, it's lingering. It's a problem. The league has clearly made a decision. There was uh, from the NBA communications Twitter account, a program, I guess you would call it, or an initiative for more sportsmanship in the game. And it looks mm-hmm. like the Celtics are going to be the NBA's uh, target. So shall we say for at least some of what they are trying to accomplish with that, like some of it is trying to change the culture from the very base up in terms of like yeah. raising, raising new players into the league, but also the on-court product, more respect for other players, more respect in particular for the referees as a whole. I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think it would have been better if they had freaking announced this in advance so that they knew what they were going up against. I think they do now. If they don't continue, if they, if they, if they continue with the complaining as they have for the last couple of seasons, uh, and it doesn't sound like they're going to stop, uh, but if they do continue, then we're going to start seeing uh, – Celtics being bounced with like Rashid Wallace regular regularity, <laughs> uh, which is not a good thing, really. I mean, yeah, they have a fair amount of depth, but this is not like a thing that we want to start having happen all the time with the Celtics. So that was one thing that concerned me. Then the other thing that maybe we can talk about is the, and there's been some good explanations. John Carlos gave me a good answer to this. This was something I had on the rundown that I wanted to talk about, which is playing drop coverage for Al Horford. It yeah. seems really weird because that's not what he's the best at, right? So if the defense 
So let me back up a little bit. If you're going to play small, you have to defend the perimeter if you don't have the right, like, big men on the court to, to protect the rim, right? We don't We can argue, and maybe we should, that, that Luke Cornett needs to get some consistent run so he, we can really see, and we're probably going to have to do this whether we want to or not, whether he can really protect the rim, whether he can really play enough to be good. Because if he's not, then they have to do something. Because December-ish, as much as it sounded good on paper, if we start seeing teams weaponizing what they saw in the Chicago game, which, as I said with, with Evan, is something I'm a little worried about in terms of size, like teams with two large bigs, like the double big line coming back to bite us, uh, that could be a trend that creates really big problems for this particular version of the Celtics while Rob is out. Yeah, let me take that, I guess, in order. The refing, uh, I guess my biggest concern, first and foremost, for anyone who didn't watch, Joe Mazzulla got tossed in the third um, shortly after Jason Tatum got teed up. And then a little bit after, maybe the beginning of the fourth, Grant Williams got tossed for seemingly inadvertent contact with the ref, but that one's got to get called. So that's fine. That one didn't hurt me at all. I'm okay with that. I don't like that that people were so quick to, to... Say that he intentionally, that Grant intentionally made contact with her. I also don't like the fact that she seemed to be kind of clueless. And then when she turned towards him at the same time, and you can say there's there's a million, million ways to parse this. So I'm not saying this is definitive, but there is a very legitimate case to be made that this was entirely accidental, and that the ref in question bore a little bit of the responsibility by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're like, yes, it was a dead ball situation, but you know, people get up, and when fouls are called, people tend to gesticulate and get upset and whatnot, and that seems to be what happened in my estimation, but I, I'm totally okay with Grant being bounced. I just want the, the, the consistency with like, if you're going to like consistently call that, like make it a point of emphasis. If you're going to have a program where you really, really, really want to emphasize respect towards the referees, make sure that all the teams and all the players have a chance to know about it. Yeah. And to that end, I mean, I thought uh, Vucevic did like, like the, yeah. The Missoula thing was like they were mad that Vucevic was getting away with stuff that that, that Tatum wasn't. Well, he didn't go like this, and that that really is what, from their perspective, the key thing. Like for the non-YouTube crowd, waving down like what Tatum does, uh, he's got to stop doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I I guess it just felt like as much as the refing felt a little choppy and awkward, the Celtics felt choppy and awkward. Yeah. So I think as much as I agree with you, I do think that like they were frustrated with themselves and then they let refing frustration compound how frustrated they were. Yeah. It's a familiar scene. I mean, all the way back to the last collapse in Chicago, it's, it's a familiar scene. Yeah. And to that end, and um, I guess I can tie this into the defense thing is like this still, as much as this is on paper, an older roster, it's still younger key guys. And I think the defense thing is interesting because I don't think that Al does have quite the speed to be that, primary drop defender but no the, but, I, I, I got derailed let me let me throw this in before i forget it again uh, corrales on the locked on celtics podcast made it made a note that uh he's it, right it's hard to switch right so you don't want to run al switching all the time but you know as a counter to that maybe when you're trying to drop defense uh and you're not calling timeouts which is another thing we can talk about uh and and the the you know the lead disappears and then the other the lead starts going in the other direction maybe try it for a little yeah. I mean, I guess what I was going to say is I don't know that I've seen such inspired defense from Brown or Brogdon such that a switch everything scheme feels incomplete. 
Um, and you'll then get, I'm, I'm, you'll get burned if you if you don't buy in. So I mean, like it's going to go one way or the other. I mean, and so going to the Rob thing being out for a while, what made the Celtics so potent last season was Rob eventually played basically free safety on defense, and I would love to see what that looks like for Jason Tatum, but it would require all four other guys either switching or covering each other appropriately. And because Tatum is increasingly the the best wing defender and maybe like athletic big defender, I don't know that he can do that because they kind of need him to stick the best guy the way that they're playing defense right now. But I don't know that. Also, do you really want to take away from his offense, particularly if you really want to have him have a real chance at MVP? Because if he plays defense that hard, particularly for large chunks of the game, I don't think that's going to be on the table for him. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm curious about it as a solution for when Rob, for as long as Rob is out, it would mean implementing and then scrapping a, a major style play. But in terms of building an MVP case, there's a world where Jason Tatum plays like one of the five best defenders in the league. And then Rob comes back and he plays like one of the best offensive players in the league. I think that that's a really interesting way to build a narrative over time. But so now I'm arguing your position that we had uh, in a conversation uh, elsewhere about narratives and MVP. And in this context, I have to say I agree with you. I don't know if the narrative would be good enough in terms of defense being something driving the MVP narrative. But I digress. Yeah, we can we can shelf MVP talk until at least after Game Five. Let's say. Yeah. Um, I will say that Tatum. I mean, player of the week award is the silliest. I mean, I it's just something think I, it counts. It's, uh, number nine for him. Number nine. Yeah. Number nine. Actually, that made it cool. Um, being the third ever player to drop 25 plus points in four straight games. Sounds like a baseball stat, but joining Larry Bird and Paul Pierce alone and any sort of Celtics history statistic is pretty fascinating. All of which is to say, Jason Tatum is playing really, really well. And the Boston Celtics beside him are playing well. And I don't know, that's either sustainable um, with room for improvement or could lead to some more Chicago-esque outings, I think. Um, So medium level of concern for what is the second week of the season, I suppose. My concern level is not even even close to that at this point. It's actually pretty minimal, but there are some concerning signs that harken back to some very bad moments in recent Celtics history. And I know you don't want to relive them. I certainly don't. Uh, and I'm pretty sure our listeners don't either. Sure. Speaking of, um, we're going to transition, I think. Anything else before we talk about Jalen? No, I mean, it's game number four. What really can we draw from it other than what we just did? Sure. So we felt it. Uh, would be intellectually dishonest to not talk about what's going on with Jalen Brown and Kanye West. So if you're done listening, thanks for listening, like, and subscribe and adios. If you want to hear us, I can't imagine we'll go for more than like five minutes, but um, I don't have too like, much to say. just felt like something worth addressing. So if you're sticking around, here we go. Um, just playing catch up for anyone who is unsure of what we're talking about. To, where to begin with Kanye West. Um, Yay. I'm going to call him Kanye. Sorry. Kanye has always said problematic things. And in the past few weeks has really said some problematic things, least of which Semitic things. I was going to say least. Well, I was going to say like, he's been all over the map for weeks and in the past few in 
uh, and specific on Twitter until his Twitter was taken down on a radio hit. And just like on a, a, a number of different channels has said blatantly, horrifically anti-Semitic things. Um, not just tropes or jest, but really malicious, straightforward. Uh, I'm not going to repeat them or cite them, but um, no you can one. Find them. It's out there. Yeah, you can find them. No one would. No one with half a conscience would disagree that they are blatantly and quite problematically anti-Semitic. Anyways, uh, Jalen Brown uh, is one of the flagship athletes alongside Aaron Donald of the NFL for Donda Sports, which is a Kanye West venture. Um, and as well, they might, people have been asking all sorts of different partners with Kanye West from um, Adidas and designer brands and all sorts of other brands. Are you going to the gap? Are you, you know, the designer brand, the, the, the gap, um, are you going to maintain this relationship or not? And a lot of brands have come out and said, no, we don't support this and actually pulled the plug. Uh, Gary Washburn of the Boston Globe had an interview with Jalen Brown about his relationship with Kanye West. Um, and he said a number of things, but he did not name anti-Semitism as uh, outright at all. Um, in a way, Justin, that you covered for Celtics Wire, it just was inadequate. Um, I will offer, and then I'll, I'll swing to you, Justin. I will offer that what Jalen said in that interview is worth considering vis-a-vis he's building something with people he works with and trusts, but without addressing forthright the, the horrificness that is Kanye West's most recent, not just statements, but apparent points of view. Um, it, it, it is woefully, I'll use the word inadequate again. Um, so that's where I'm at. And that's my kind of summary of where we're at. Anything I missed and any yeah. vision on your end? So one of the most important things that Jalen said kind of highlighted what he was missing at the same time in that, yes, Donda represents a lot of things that are not Kanye West specifically, right? And it's built by a lot of people's work, but it's not Kanye West, Ye West, Mr. West. I'm going to call him Mr. West for the moment. Uh, In the context of that, all of these people, whether we like it or not, People associate your actions, your affiliations, your friendships, your words with the people whose company you keep, whether it's in a working relationship, a professional relationship, a friendship relationship, it doesn't matter what that is, right? If you are going to use your platform to try to do good things, as we have seen in the case of Kyrie, uh, shout out to uh, Wozni Lambre's Peachtree Kyrie <laughs> comment. I, I, brief moment of levity and how accurate that comment was. Um, If you use your platform to do good things, that's great, but you are also going to be held up to greater scrutiny and you are also going to be associated with the acts of the people you affiliate with when you do those things. So Jalen has to make a decision and it's his decision. I do not care what he believes in private. I do not care if he supports Kanye West, Mr. West, in private, I don't care. That's a thing, that's a decision he is making about his personal life, about personal decisions that don't necessarily represent him, right? But in the public view, when he is asked questions, he can decline to comment if he doesn't feel comfortable, if he's worried about it. Uh, but if you publicly associate yourself with people who say terrible things and do terrible things, then everything else you do is going to be associated with that. 
And there's no way around that. And that's not me talking, that's history talking. And that's really the only thing I have to say about this stuff. Yeah, I guess, you know what, we've done this before with vaccine stuff and I don't personally see many shades of gray there, but I intellectually understand that it's a really complicated topic. Anti-Semitism isn't. Um, and the way that Kanye has spoken is not complicated. It's very blatant. And it led to, among other things, a demonstration from a white nationalist paramilitary group on the 405. Um, saying yeah, these are real stuff. consequences. This is not like people's feelings being hurt about their guy doing the thing they don't like. Well, and so that, and so to that end, like the, the, this issue is really black and white. Um, and that a person that Jalen partners with has said and inspired just unabashedly painful things. Uh, um, I don't think that there is an intellectual conversation to have that would look for nuance here. What Kanye West said is, rooted in, in uh, a unfortunately rich tapestry of hate. And not and mental illness. I know lots of bipolar people. They don't become racist when they're having a manic episode. Just throw that out. Please don't. Sure. So, so all of that is to say, I, I agree with your point. Uh, um, and I do think it's incumbent um, on a public figure on, and someone participating in capitalism to explain your partnerships. Um, you're not just a role model, but you're also a business person and you're choosing to do business with someone who is quite on the record saying really hurtful things. Without remorse. Um, with with uh, pride, I would hazard on the part of Kanye. Um, so to, 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 I don't think that this is necess- like disqualifying of Jalen. I don't think that this means that Jalen is an anti-Semite um, or a hateful person. Um, and there are bigger, scarier anti-Semites in the world than Kanye West, more powerful ones that we maybe ought to pay more attention to. But I do f- find it disappointing, and I know that feels almost paternalistic, but I, I think Jalen's words, uh, the, the things he chose to say and the things he chose not to say or, or omitted or maybe wishes he did say at some point, uh, all of it teed up to it hurt a lot of people and disappointed a lot of people. Um, so it's ugly. I I don't think that we are participating in cancel culture. And I don't, I think that the, all pretenses of that are ridiculous. Um, I think Kanye West should go away. I don't think we need him in the, the culture right now. Um, I think that Jalen Brown continues to be a member of the Boston Celtics and someone who does good in the world, but uh, misstepped in a big, big way here. Um, and I hope he is reflecting on that and maybe looking for ways to assuage that. Um, Cause I don't think it's controversial that he made a mistake here. And I think that mistakes can be two things. They can be something you carry with you for the rest of your life or an opportunity to change. And I, I hope it's honestly the latter. Cool. I agreed. Um, so yeah, I, I guess also I'll end. I don't really know what happens next with Donda sports anyways, now that Adidas dropped Kanye. So uh, there might also be um, also be logistical questions that Jalen needs to answer for himself. In any event, um, thank you everyone for listening. If you're still hanging on, um, hopefully our commentary there was useful. And if we missed something uh, or framed something, of course we meant no offense either. Um, Please let all- us know if we're getting any of this wrong. 
you know, I'm not a Jew. I don't have the right to speak for Jews, but I do want to be a good accomplice, if not an ally. Uh, so please, if you have the ability, I'm not expecting you to do so uh, in terms of emotional labor, time, all of that good stuff. But if you are so disposed to help us understand how to help the situation better, we are totally open to it. Yeah, so well said. Well done there. Um, so thanks for listening. And uh, next time we talk, we'll probably have a Cavs and a Wizards game to talk about and who knows what else. So. We'll see you then.